we're encouraging you to fast. And in our booklet, uh, we give you some alternatives, giving up food, amusements, sleep, technology. I'm struggling with the concept of giving up food because I'm a diabetic and I don't want to crash. I do fast from 10 o'clock at night to 6 in the morning. <laughs> so, so maybe that will give me a little break. But some of you may have dietary issues. Uh, and so we give you some alternative ways that the issue is what I'm willing to give up to gain. See, Emerson wrote a, a thesis called Compensation. For everything you lose, you gain. For what you gain, you lose. And he just kept working out that thesis. But uh, uh, I want you to see one reason we wanted to include fasting is that because we're in a uh, pastoral search mode, uh, look at Acts 13. And if you read the pamphlet, you'll read that they fasted when there was emergencies, Jehoshaphat and Esther. Uh, they fasted in repentance. Uh, it was often used in the Old Testament. But when you come to the New Testament, did they ever fast? You remember what Jesus said? The, the disciples uh, of John the Baptist, they came and they said, you know what, Jesus, we never see your disciples fast. But John's disciples do. He said, mine do not need to fast as long as I'm with them. But when I'm gone, they should fast. So this is the time to fast. There's plenty of emergencies, plenty of needs. But then notice what the church did in Acts 13. Let's give you two references. Verse 1, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Patriarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping, worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and set them off. Here the church was wondering about who should go out on this missionary journey, whatever God's will was, the personnel, the personnel. And uh, as they fasted and prayed, God made his will known. Okay? We're, we're all in a situation. Uh, we've never had to choose another pastor in 48 years. All right? You didn't even choose me to start with. I mean, you chose to come, but there was nobody to vote me in. That's the only reason I got it. <laughs> there, there was nobody here, see? And so uh, dance halls, don't uh, not many people interested in them. And so here they want to know God's direction. And some of you, Fred, what are they doing? What are they doing? We're doing. The main thing I want us to do as a congregation is to fast and pray. And seek God's mind. Because I think God knows who he wants. I can't hear you. You don't believe it. You don't believe it. You just said amen because I stared at you. <laughs> no, no. He didn't say, I will be with you as long as Phil is pastor. Did he? Some of you got to pray about that. Matter of fact, you won't know how blessed you'll be when you get someone different. Yeah. He says, get someone that has none of my faults, hang-ups, and corny sayings. Hey, you don't know. You might be in for a bonanza blessing. Uh, but it's an emotional time for us. But instead of being all emotional, and who's doing what? Believe me, elders are talking. We're, we're, we, we haven't brought anything to you because we don't have any answers yet. But what about praying and fasting? Could we get one? Can God show us the future? I mean, for all of us, what's our future? I mean, the Bay Area this time, we got a lot of people that move in the summer, one here, one there. I pray God would replenish who he takes. 
and that's a goal. And uh, by the way, we've got 40 people downstairs in a uh, marriage class, and so we got 20 couples that are taking that. Don't any of you join the class. You've got to stay here. It's going for six weeks, but they're having a great time. Look at uh, Acts 14.23. This was choosing a church leadership. I, I've never known a church to do this. I'm sure they have. Notice this. 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so that appointing elders, church leaders, was a matter that drove the church to fast, drove the church to pray. Uh, see, they go vertical. They go into the Lord. What do we do today? We get a bunch of nominees and a bunch of people that don't know the nominees or barely know the church. They cast a vote, and we call that the will of God. Uh, no, I say this side, we should be fasting, praying. God, make obvious your leader. Make obvious who you want. That's who I want to want. I want to want what God wants. And, and he'll do that. And uh, uh, so I just wanted to not do a whole message on fasting, but just some there are biblical grounds for it. Uh, I used to fast every Thursday when I was in high school, and I was amazed how delicious a Richmond high school hot dog looked on the fasting days. It was torture. Uh, you know, because the day it wasn't, but I used to do it for power. I was taught that, to get close to God. Uh, didn't know how to preach, but I thought I ought to learn how to pray. I wish more men would quit preaching and learn how to pray first. Henry Jowett said, I'd rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. So I hope you learn to pray, learn to talk to God. Turn to James chapter 4. I want to speak on draw nigh to God, how to do it. How do you draw nigh to God? Uh, you find this language all over the Bible when God says, uh, seek my face. Uh, when he says to uh, uh, they sought him First Chronicles seek him and you will find him forsake him and he will forsake you uh, ask seek and knock uh, God is with those who seek him well where do you seek where's the address where do you knock uh the Lord is near to all who call on him. Seek my face, he says in Psalms. Let all who seek you rejoice. Seek my name. Look to the Lord. Seek God's help. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. And over and over, they sought the Lord. They drew nigh. Now, here's the thing. In the Old Testament, you couldn't draw nigh. The message was loud and clear. Only the priests can come close, and only one man a year can come into the Holy of Holies. And all of a sudden, the veil is rent when Christ dies, and we get Hebrews who said, come into a rent veil entrance, for the veil that was rent was his body. Come with a clean conscience and speak boldly to God. Come, come, come. I want to hear you. You don't need to be a priest. You don't need to go through an animal sack. Come into my presence. Come. The door to heaven and to the ear of God has been opened through the sacrifice of Christ so that every child of God has this divine invitation. Come, and I'll be waiting for you. I'll welcome you. What a promise. Hebrews 2.16, 2, 4.18, chapter 10, verses 19 through 21. It's right there. So now, James is going to address a church. It's a church that we would say is backslidden. He uses the word that has become worldly, a worldly church. Some doubt that they're even believers. Uh, 
but he calls them brothers. And so I'm assuming this church has been invaded or fallen into a worldliness that James is concerned about, and he writes. And so he does several things. He describes their conditions, and we'll see four things about the condition they were in. Two, he tells them of God's gracious offer. And then three, he's going to give them some concrete steps they can take in drawing nigh to God. Because man is far from God. Romans says no man seeks after God. He seeks after idols. He seeks after creature worship. But no man seeks God naturally. Only those who know God can seek God. So let's describe their condition. Listen to what James says. What causes quarrels or wars? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Hmm. The condition, the first thing is they're a fighting group of believers. They're into fighting all the time. He uses two words. The first word is war, and that means perpetual. They're, they're in perpetual warfare. Then he uses a word, they quarrel, and that means uh, spats break out, individual. So you see a group of people that are fighting among themselves over all kinds of issues. And uh, James said, wow, you're not a praying church. Obviously, you're a fighting church, uh, a scrapping church. And since I happen to know many in God's work, uh, I, I'm sorry to say many a church has destroyed itself by its own infighting. We are capable of destroying ourselves. You know nothing about God's work if you don't know that. You know why missionaries come back? They've told me more often. They don't come back because of the people they went to. They can't get along with the missionaries they have to work with. I know that. They've told me. That it's getting along. He said in Galatians 5, Beware lest you devour one another. And he said that right before he commands him to be filled with the Spirit. Apart from the Spirit's filling ministry, most of you wouldn't even be married. We can't keep marriages going in this country, in or out of the church. Because God isn't in charge of the person that's doing the fighting. And so he says, we know you're a fighting church. You're fighting people. Two, your prayer life is in ruins. Because of this fighting, listen to what he says. 
Uh, you do not have because you do not ask. Well, uh, why don't you ask? Because he says, you're ruled by strong desires and by a hedonistic spirit, which is pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. You remember 2 Timothy 3? Men shall be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers professing God, but far from God. And so it's an age of pleasure-seeking. I mean, we're the most entertained generation of people that's ever been on the planet. We're entertained constantly. I mean, even if it's not the phone, which is no longer a phone, but a computer that I can see my movies, I can catch up on my email, I can go to websites I shouldn't be at. I, I got to have something come at me all the time. I can't be without entertainment. I can't be without more information coming to me. We're the information glut generation. When I was in seminary, I remember Howard Hendricks used to say, high tech demands high touch. He said, we're going to be drowning before you men know it in the information age. If selling information, we don't sell as many products. We have China do that. We have other countries do that. We sell information. Info, 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 info. And he said, they were governed by their strong desires for other things and their pleasures, hedonism. So their prayer life is in ruins. Uh, they don't ask for God's help. And when they do ask, they don't have the kind of motives. See, God's not a benevolent sugar daddy God. Give me, give me, give me. No, he's a God to be feared. You're the one that ought to be doing some giving. Giving your life giving your heart, surrendering yourself. Don't be bossing God. Do not boss God. And prayer isn't your automatic uh, visa card to God that says, I'm waiting for you to do it. No, no, no. What's your motives? So inside, they were in no condition to have a prayer life. You know, if you don't want what God wants, why pray? God Help me to be immoral tonight. I need your strength. God, help me pull off this robbery and not get caught. God, help me as I hate my brother and hope that he falls. Hmm. No. Prayer says you're aligning yourself to God. We often say prayer changes things. It doesn't change God. It changes you. That's the one that needs to be changed. If you ask anything in my name, if you ask anything according to my will, if my words abide in you, then you ask, I'll hear you. So it's that alignment. He goes on to say something that would be shocking if I just got up and said, well, I want to address all you adulteresses this morning. Here's, here's the pastor at Jerusalem saying, Hey, the people I'm talking to in the church, whether they've invaded from the side, whether they're true believers or not, by the way, you're acting like adulteresses, like a faithless wife. Now, this is common language. This is the most Jewish epistle, probably besides Hebrews, in the New Testament. James, the apostle in Jerusalem, is using language that the Jewish ear, just like that, they would think Jeremiah 3, Jeremiah 16, Ezekiel 16, boom, you are a prostitute, you are unfaithful. Words like whoredom, prostitution, adultery, I mean, all these strong terms, and whoa, whoa, the Bible seems like it's X-rated. It's just telling Israel, you I took as a wife, and you've decided to sleep with other gods, and it's his term for idolatry. Your idolatry is unfaithfulness to me, and to get it into your heart to know it's like a man's wife that chooses to sleep with other men and still remain married. He said, hear me, Israel. You've not read your Bible if you don't know this. Ezekiel 16, Israel, I raised you. I found you drowning in your blood in the wilderness. I rescued you. Cord. I raised you. I raised you as a young daughter. 
I clothed you, I perfumed you, I was good to you. And by the time you came of age, I thought, you know what, I need a wife. He uses that whole analogy. And I, I took you to be my wife, but when you got beautiful, when you got rich, when you smelled good, when the afterbirth of the bloody birth we went through, when all that was behind you, you said, I'm not giving my affections to you. I'm giving it to Assyria and Egypt. I'm going to sleep with a lot of other gods. God said, I'm a jealous God. I'm not passive. I didn't marry my wife to share her with the community. So he takes on graphic, gripping language. Your unfaithfulness to me is as outrageous as an unfaithful wife because you've decided to sleep with the world and not with me. You've chosen to be friends with a system that hates me. Because see, the world, what the world is, is a glove that Satan puts his hand in. He's the God of the, God of the age. He even offered Christ all the kingdoms of this world. That's amazing that he can make that offer. That's a pretty bold offer. But J John said he controls us because the world appeals to our eye. It appeals to the inward lust of our flesh. And it appeals to our pride. And if you love it, the love of the Father is not in you. You can't love it and love the Father. You can use it. You work on jobs in the world. You buy food made by the world. But he's talking about an evil system under the control of Satan. Don't make that your friendship, as it were, when you ignore your vows to me. Don't be sleeping with the wrong person. I'm your God. Then he goes into verse 5, and he says, by the way, I am a jealous God. And it's a difficult verse. We don't know. They said the Scripture says, and you can't find that Scripture. There's no place in the Bible. But he combines something. He said, God has caused the spirit he has put in us to envy or yearn over us with jealousy. Two views on it. Some take it to be the human spirit at creation. God put a human spirit in every human being, and guess what he wants you to do with that spirit? He wants you to worship God in spirit and in truth. Your human spirit. When he says worship me in spirit, it's not Holy Spirit. It's your human spirit. I want your inner man to be worshiping me. Some take it to be, is he put the Holy Spirit in us so that the Holy Spirit he put in us is the one doing the yearning. There's debate among scholars. The main emphasis, though, is jealousy. Jealousy. I am jealous over you. I won't share you and look the other way. I'll ask you, why don't you love me enough to be faithful? Why don't you love me enough not to be looking at another lover? Am I not enough? Am I not enough? And don't say this doesn't happen. It happened entirely to the nation of Israel. I mean, th this was their primary sin. You have broken your vows. And he says in Je Jeremiah 3, I've divorced you. I'm giving you a bill of divorce. Isaiah also said it. You're divorced. And yet, he's still bound to them because he made a covenant with Abraham. It's an amazing thing to be unfaithful to God. And I think we've done so much of it, it doesn't even shock us. Is he the first love of your heart? I mean, here Jesus says, you know, I'm a little perturbed with you because you left your first love for me. Why do you tell a church that? Because they did it. What does he do with uh, Laodicea? You know what? I'm getting ready to spit you out of my mouth because you become so putrefying in your temperature, spiritual temperature, that I find no satisfaction in you. You're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. And yet, and yet, he said, I'm knocking at the door to get in. I still love you. I still want to get in. Look at verse 6. 
His graces, his graces offer to them. I want to be gracious to you. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to remove you. Listen to what verse 6 says. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What's God saying? I want to be gracious to you. If you'd only humble yourself and admit my diagnosis of you, admit where your heart may be towards me, I want to be gracious to you. The door, yeah, I'm knocking at the door. I want to come in. I want to up the temperature. I want to restore you like in uh, Revelation 3. I'm knocking at the door. I want to be gracious. How many times have we uh, strayed in our affections? Strayed, got taken up with something, some worldly diversion. And the wooing of his spirit brought us back, brought us back. Prone to wonder. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it for your courts above. Prone to wonder. Prone to wonder. Oh, my land. I could fall in love with the world system any day. It's there. It looks good. It'll feel good. It'll boost my ego. I need the boost. And can't you see this? I think about this jealousy. Uh, in the years of doing marital counseling, I've never seen a marriage get better as long as a third party was present. You can't heal a marriage with a third party. I love you, baby. You're my wife, but I got her over here. Now, a lot of cultures, that's just the way they live. I was in Macau. I was in Hong Kong. And the men had their wives, but they went to Macau to gamble at night and sleep with other women. It was just a way of life. It was acceptable. She's for the legitimacy of my children. This is have fun to gamble and to do whatever. But God says, uh, you got to get rid of the third party. Quit making the world the, the object of your affection and taking you away. Some of you are in love with the world, probably. Your job comes first. Your pleasures come first. Me first. It's interesting, if you ever want to see the Ken Burns documentary on the West, how the West was won, and it's, a fa it's on Netflix. It's a fascinating uh, series. And uh, talking about that, of course, they're running into the Plains, Indians, Cheyenne, a Cherokee, the Sioux. Cherokee were Seminole, Trail of Tears, Carolina. They give them Oklahoma because it's wasteland. They just didn't know there was oil under that soil. They just gave them what was nobody wanted. No, nobody wanted Oklahoma. And uh, my grandfather on my mother's side was in that land rush. He staked the land. He was a coal miner, and a man hired him to stake out his claim. Just wastelands. But it was interesting, as the Easterners in Europe, people who just wanted to own land, as they went west and they met these weird-looking people called Indians. You know, it's it's a the history is brutal. We kicked the Mexicans out of California who had been here 350 years before we got here. Spain was here 350 years before California, before we got it. Then we outlawed them, get back to Mexico. Now, at the Indians, one of the amazing things in vocabulary is the Indians had no word for I, me, or my. Because they were a group people. They were communal. It was uh, us and they. They talked about the invaders. They're always called the they. They're they. Us. Just think of how much of our lives is I, me, and my. Huh. It's about me. It's about my. It's about me, 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 me. And we wonder why God is very interested in our praying. Is this about you or about me? And so James is talking to a church. 
Now, he tells them 10 imperatives. I won't break them all from verse 7 through 12. 10 imperatives. Do this, do this, do this. If you want to get back and get right with God, first thing you need to do is submit to God. What does it mean to submit to God? Let me say this easy and as simple as I know. When will you obey him? Are, are you an obedient servant that you obey God? That's simple. When you just obey him. We can talk about submission, getting low, underneath. All. It's just there's one Lord and you obey him. Submission is obedience. And then he said, resist the devil and he will flee from you. What a promise. He will flee from you. Remember Jesus? Jesus used three verses, and the devil left him. Isn't that interesting? He just quoted three verses. Three verses, and the devil left him. Did you know that? When the devil's talking to you, if you just quote Scripture to him, he'll get sick of hearing it, and he'll leave you alone. Do you know enough Bible to resist the devil? Do you know when the devil's lying to you? You know, uh, your mother-in-law isn't the devil. <laughs> and everything you think isn't necessarily the devil, but he's a, he lies about God. He wants to deceive you about God. He wants you to doubt God. He wants to discourage you. And so take the shield of faith, taking up the sword of the Spirit, which are the words of God. And so he says, resist him. Because when he, when he roars, he scares us. I, I had a, a man tell me he went to on a safari. It was a miniature one in South Africa. <clears throat> and he was quoting what some of the pastors told him about big game hunters that went to Africa. He said that it's very interesting. If they wanted to hunt for lions, they'd have the guide taking them, which would be a local uh, African. And, and mo they would tell the story how many of those big game hunters, they, here's the lion, and it would just stop. Said you had less than maybe two seconds to pull off a shot. Two seconds, maybe. He said, because once it pounced, they were paralyzed. And said, guys would constantly just say, they would just freeze. And it would and it'd be the guy that would pull off the shot. Because fear frees them. And the scripture says, the devil will scare the daylights out of you. And you want to run. You want to flee. Fight or flight. You want to flee. He said, don't flee, stand. Resist him. Satan, you're a liar. Satan, you're a liar. You're deceiving me. You're lying to me. You're trying to discourage me. You're telling me to leave my wife, leave the church, give up this, give up. Resist him. You're in spiritual warfare for your life. Resist his lies. Resist him. Resist. Stand. Stand. Don't flee. But so many in church, they're not even aware we're in warfare. They're looking for the reign of Christ. Hey, it's not here yet. And Satan will have to be bound for us to have that reign. Resist the devil. After you've submitted to God, the positive side is resist God's enemy. Don't let him. Don't let him have your kids. Don't let him run your house. Don't let him run your mind. Don't let him run your mouth. I'm not your child anymore. I'm not under the control of Satan. This is no battle for pansies. You've got to take the armor of God, the word of God, and trust the spirit of God to say, I resist. I'm, I'm not giving in to you. I shall not live by bread alone. Angels will bear me up but I will not tempt the Lord my God. Keep all your worldly offers. I take the cross before I get the kingdom. I will embrace it. Stand, stand, or lose everything. Or lose everything. Then he comes to draw nigh 
unto God. I had a man tell me one time, I said, we need to draw an eye to God. He said, that's unbiblical. And I said, really? He said, God's everywhere. He said, God's everywhere. So I got mad and studied. And just to win the argument. And not really, but I wanted to be sure. Is that biblical language? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Is that biblical language? Seek the Lord. Call on his name. Uh, you know, all this kind of language, what is he talking about? Well, uh, what he is saying is it's used three ways. The presence of the Lord used three ways. Number one, it speaks about where God hangs out. God's got a street address in the third heavens. God's got an address. Angels know where to find him. Satan knew where to go to find There is a throne up there. Uh, there is a place called heaven. And we're not talking about where the stars are. The first heaven you see by day, atmosphere. Second heaven by night, stratosphere. Third heaven you see by faith. It's where God's throne is. Okay. Paul was caught up to the third, third heaven. Uh, so they're there. So it's a real locality. God emphasizes his nature in a particular place where spirit beings can find him and report. You remember Satan, even when he was going up and down the earth looking for a man to try like Job, he had to go to the throne and get permission. So there's a place. Two, God's nature, God's nature says, I am everywhere there's anything created. Everything that's ever been created, I am there. That's how vast, infinite, and immense I happen to be. And that goes beyond stars, molecules, anything, anything of created matter, God is present to it. Now, animism said he's one with it. He's not one with nature. God and a redwood tree are not related. The, the, the God isn't in the redwood tree. He's present with it. And what mankind and idolatry said, they worship the creature instead of the creator. So our God is vast. You may not know this. How would I? I don't know how. I could. Let's say this is the whole universe. I mean, we're going beyond the Milky Way, how far out there it goes. I mean, wh whatever has been created, whatever, God is bigger. Did you know that God goes beyond his creation? But, this is a little, but he stops somewhere. Why just keep going on and on and on? I'm over all creation, but I, I've set limits. I think it's John 7. He set limits on how big he is. He didn't need to. There's nobody out there to show. The Trinity already knows how big they are. And then there's the use of God's presence to be described by his face, by relational, personal drawing nigh. And that's what he means. Come nigh to God as a person, as a father. Draw nigh to him. Well, James... You, don't, you haven't told me how. I think he tells four ways you can draw an eye. Number one, get clean before God. Cleanse yourself, your hands, your sinners, and purify your hearts, your double-minded. Have you gotten clean? They knew in the Old Testament you couldn't be going into God's presence without ceremonial cleansing, without sacrificial blood. God is saying, get clean. Take 1 John 1, 9. Confess your sinful attitudes, sinful whatever. Uh, take Ephesians 5, the word that's like a bar of soap. You need to wash yourself in God's presence. Just get in God's presence. We heard a speaker this summer said, name it, confess it. Name what, what you're doing before God. Name it. Take off the fig leaves and, and go be honest before God. Do you ever honestly just name what you're doing? And I've said before, uh, I did a message one time on 1 John 1, 9, and 
gave the word for confess, and it's homologeo, nice little word, but it means to call it the same name, name it. And then, but what was ruinous about it is, is Carolyn heard the sermon. And so the next time we had a disagreement or a spat or when I needed to apologize, I did my typical, uh, uh, Carolyn, uh, forgive me. And I thought that was sufficient. She said, for what? You said you had to name it. I said, Carolyn, that's cruel. Forgive you for what? You know. Come on, cut me some space. She said, I'd like to hear what you, oh. Uh, I, I was hateful. Uh, I went out the door, didn't wait on you. I slammed the door on your leg. Uh, I mean, I have to go, I have to name those things. Come on, in and up, just forgive me. I don't want to talk about it. Name it. And don't claim it. Just name it. You need to get clean. Some of you, you know why you've been on the pew so long? You refuse to get clean. You're too dirty for God to use. You're sleeping with the wrong person. You're sleeping with pornography. You're sleeping with a bad attitude. There's people you don't like in the church, and you've come to hate them. No wonder God's not answering your prayers. you got to get clean. You got to get rid of all this hate, all this filth, all this lust. Hey, get, we're surrounded with it. Don't say we're not. Don't tell me we don't get dirty. Get in His presence, Lord. I want to take a. I, I need a bath right now. I got to get clean. I'm going to draw nigh, and I can't play around and hide my sins. I want to tell you first. I need to be restored. Draw nigh by getting clean. Verse 9, draw nigh by getting serious enough to repent. Listen to what he says. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. My, can't imagine a church service, people hearing this saying, good night, I'm going to go to church here. This is a wacko church. Nobody telling me to mourn. Nobody telling me, uh, you know, to uh, turn... I'm on party time, honey. I want to at least throw one more more last dance before the Titanic goes down. Could you put on, I feel good. You feel good. Well, you're going to feel like drowning. Time's running out. It ran out for James. In other words, James says, you need to take your condition serious enough to repent. I was listening to Mississippi Mass Choir a while back. They do amazing graces. Only our black brothers can do. And uh, they just had some kids do some rapping. And they were trying to say, well, Mississippi, you're old-fashioned and you don't keep up with rapping. And, and so the choir director who's died since then, he he said, let me, let me sing Amazing Grace like we did. And they started singing it. And uh, he came to one part. They just started humming it. And I remember him saying, sometimes I like to just groan in his presence and mourn. And they started groaning, the choir with him. Sometimes I just want to get in his presence so I can mourn and weep over my condition. I've seen that a lot of times. I want to belong to a black church just so I can mourn, so I can groan. I don't want all the folks upset. Sometimes I just feel like groaning. Sometimes I feel like wailing. My condition and the condition of this world, I don't feel like a smile. I feel heavy. I feel sorrowful. I don't like what's happening in this country. I don't know 
I don't like this racism that's boiling again. I don't like it. I hate it. I'm sick of some Christians more in love with politics than they are in humbling themselves and coming before God. I'll see if they're at the prayer meeting tonight. Let's see who comes back for prayer tonight. Won't be a concert. It'll be just going vertical. And he says, James says, I want you to wail. I want you to weep. I want you to take your condition serious. Did any of you ever grow up on altars, altar call? Yeah. I grew up in churches. We had all mourners bench. It wasn't Catholic liturgy altar. It was places where the saints prayed. Anybody grow up with that? Three of you? Oh, four. I remember, well, I would only get to see Carolyn on the weekends. We were in high school. But about that time, the folks had gotten so hooked on alcohol, they were drinking a lot, fighting a lot. And she was watching the demise of a home that she held dear. Mom and dad that for years, just great memories, whatever. Then booze came into that family. They both were spending nearly all nights in bars and this and that. Stories told over a million times. They grew apart. And I'd only get to see her maybe Friday or Saturday. But I remember if we were in revival meetings or any things we held, many a night waiting. And I went over there, I thought, I at least am going to get a kiss before I go back to Richmond. <laughs> and she'd be in the altar praying, weeping, interceding for her mom and dad. God, save my mom, save my dad, prevent this divorce. You see, we didn't grow up. We didn't have money to go to counselors. We just had an altar. And many times I fought being ticked. Why can't she pray later? I need a lip lock. <laughs> and she's down there at that altar. I grew up with a sister that was the youth leader at 15th and Cuddy. And I learned to pray because I went to church with her when she went. Never seen a woman or anyone get on their knees and immediately into tears so much. I mean, it, she knelt, handkerchief out, and she started interceding for the kids that would come to youth group. There's only about 10 of us. You think she's praying over the whole world weeping, interceding. Why can't you get that emotional about God and souls and our spiritual condition? I don't want an emotional church. I want a nice church. I want a guy just to preach, but don't have any emotion. No, you don't have any emotion because you're dead towards God. When you know God, you get God's emotions. If he could weep over Jerusalem, I could weep over this place. And you can too. Mourn our condition. I mourn the fact we desperately need revival. I mourn that every youth group that's gone through this church, we never retain over 5% of them. Only 5% for And we've had great youth leaders. Ted Montoya spoke. Manny had him yesterday. That was a great thing to do, Manny. Spoke at our volleyball madness playoff. And we knew Leonardo would pick it off again. Our family's fighting hate. Now, heard they had a great playoff. But, you know, we've had great, we've had Ted, we've had uh, Paul Crandall, we've had Dave uh, Hurtado. We've had one, Manny's doing a great job. Yeah, but you know what? It just bothers me. If 50 kids go through, I'm hoping that in three years after high school, will they still be in church? Or did we just entertain them, feed them, and do our best to reach them? But why such an attrition rate? I mourn the loss of another generation. I'm praying God save grandchildren in my family. How can you be the grandfather, a preacher and a grandfather, and have unsaved grandchildren? Yeah. Yeah. 
I'll tell you, you never graduate from waiting on God for the next generation. You never get tired of it. Verse 10, he says, uh, draw nigh to God by his repeated theme, like Peter, humble yourself. And I think this humility is just admit you're desperately in need. Laodicea, you tell me you're rich. You tell me you can see. You tell me you're clothed. And my lens, I find you poor. I find you blind. I've got an opposite diagnosis on you. And then he says, by the way, drawing nigh to God would make you start loving the brethren and to stop judging them. You're not qualified to judge. First Corinthians 4, Paul said, judge nothing before that time. Then the Lord will judge the motives of the heart. You only have an opinion, but don't judge your brother. Leave that up to God. He's much more accurate, is he not? Whose hands do you want to fall into? A critical brother or a loving father? And nobody knows more about you than your father. Gone too long. Let me pray. Father, I would that we can come back tonight and that burdens are lifted at Calvary and burdens are lifted when we cast. We desperately need the repentance, the seriousness to draw nigh. You're not impressed with size. You're not impressed with numbers. You said the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth that he may show himself mighty on behalf of him whose heart is right towards Jehovah. I pray you'll find some righteous people here that can get a prayer through. For the prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Hear us, Lord, as we are desperately dependent. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You're dismissed.